0: Hey friends, today's guest is Blake Schwarzenbach, guitarist and vocalist for the punk rock band Jawbreaker. Blake and I break down the writing, recording, release, and legacy of the fan favorite classic, Boxcar, taken from their 1994 album, 24 Hour Revenge Therapy. The song Boxcar is one of the more simpler arrangements in the Jawbreaker catalog, but the story behind the song's inspiration is anything but ordinary. Blake shared how the song's roots can be traced back to the side of the road in France, while the band was on tour in the early 90s, what the song's title is in direct reference to, and how Pickle Juice played an ever-so-important part in bringing this song together. For all this and much more, lace up your Doc Martens and let's jump into this awesome episode. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Man, I was trying to think of how I was gonna set this one up. Uh, it, it, I'm, I'm not usually at a loss for words, but uh, you know, your band uh, has meant a lot to me. My band, Less Than Jake, is from Gainesville, Florida, and you guys are just revered there. You always have been. As a matter of fact, that was the first time that I saw Jawbreaker was on Sunday, April 14th, 1996, at the Covered Dish. Uh, That was on the Dear You Tour. I don't know if you guys played Gainesville before then. If you did, I was out on tour or something. Do you remember ever playing the hardback?
1: Oh, yeah. No, we played Gainesville a lot. We always stopped in Gainesville.
0: I, I knew you did, and like I said, I for some reason had not seen you until the Dear U Tour, and uh, that that's pretty crazy considering I I, I knew that you had uh, had traveled through there before, and as I said, you were just absolutely like it was almost like you were a Gainesville band to all my friends uh, that that lived there at the time. So you guys released four records: Unfun in 1990, uh, Bivouac in 1992. 24 Hour Revenge Therapy in 94 and of course Dear You in 95 and the, the track we're going to be talking about today is Boxcar uh, which comes from the 24 Hour Revenge Therapy record so if you could take us back was this song specifically written for that record or was it written uh, for Bivouac or in between?
1: It's interesting that you chose that song because it's probably our least interesting song <laughs> and also the one that was like written in about 10 minutes but it has been like a uh, fan favorite, I guess. Yes. Kind of is a good introduction to the band, because you know, you get it all in a very short amount of time. And I'll tell you, my, my only recollection of writing that song was when we were pulled over in France on a tour of Europe, and I think they were doing a drug check of the van, and we had to wait out on the side of the road, and I was out there like playing a dry electric guitar, just coming up with this kind of angry nursery rhyme song had been like pinging around in my head and uh and that began it and then i probably nursed it along in my mind and memory and uh, when i got back to oakland i think i kind of finished it off
0: so was that on on tour for for the previous record bivouac that that happened or probably
1: i mean we were always like one album ahead of our output in terms Uh of like we would tour a record that wasn't released and bum out our fans Every time you're like, <laughs> we always playing the re- record about to be recorded.
0: Well, and back then you could get away with doing that because it didn't show up on YouTube right away and give away give away what your next record was.
1: Yeah, it's true. You have to be a little more cautious.
0: I did pick this song for, for a couple of reasons. Uh there's just there's some history between our bands that maybe you're you're unaware of, but we ended up recording a record with Rob Cavallo, and I was begging Rob in 2002 when we were doing the record that because he had told me that that you guys had re-recorded Boxcar for the Dear You sessions, and Rob's like, hey, yeah, I'll get the cassette, I'll bring it in, you know, I got it somewhere, and he never ended up, and it wasn't until YouTube that I ended up years later hearing hearing that cut, but um, the song. You know, even though you're, you had mentioned it's simplistic in nature compared to some of your arrangements, which, as we know, just can get very jazzy and time signatures and crazy. And that's what I love about Jawbreaker. But this song still retains what I call your poetry. You know, the words in this song are just some some things. And that's why I'm so fascinated about it. And and I'm so thrilled to talk to you today about it. It's uh, it's still again, I call it your poetry that you meshed with your music, that there's just stuff in here. I'm like, what does that mean? It's fascinating to me.
1: Well, I mean, it's a it's a pretty off the cuff haiku kind of observational piece (laughs) and definitely a response (laughs) to like what I felt was troublesome about California punk rock at that within that year you know my experience of it of kind of the scene and how it seemed to fall short of the vision of punk that i kind of grew up with like i felt like it was a it was a really uh petty and kind of sniping scene at times looking back it's fucking beautiful honestly like now it looks great i I welcome the (laughs) backstab no one cares no one cares anymore but back then it really did feel like people would get mired in these little squabbles that were like so outside of the kind of project of challenging received wisdom
0: right you know and 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 this podcast is is you know, we we deal strictly, you know, mostly with songwriting. And I don't want to get too much into this, but if there was one band that I feel that got unfairly treated by a scene that was supposed to be all inclusive was Jawbreaker. I mean, I hated it for you guys. I hated what happened to your band because I feel like there was so much more to your story. When you guys had uh, you know, called it quits, I, just, I, I felt that, uh, and it wasn't just your band. I mean, the cries of sellout in the 90s were just, uh, it was crazy. You couldn't do anything without somebody having, uh, taking issue with it. Whereas nowadays, kids don't care what label you're on. <laughs> they just don't.
1: It's true. Although I guess there's, now we have kind of another, I mean, there's so many ways to cast aspersion on people via Twitter, via social media. It's, it's kind of the same tone emotionally, mm-hmm. but it's the issue isn't kind of, yeah, it isn't corporate sellout. It's more like you're a bad person or right whatever, yeah. but it, but it's the, the kind of impulse seems to be the same to like tear people. It's hating, you know, just tearing people down to, to make yourself feel better.
0: Yeah. I never really thought about it like that. It's a very interesting and, and, and valid point that, uh, yeah, you're right. It's it's taken to the form of <laughs> Twitter and Instagram and whatever else is the new uh, is the new hating mechanism versus uh, you know opening up a zine and uh, oh they signed a Geffen, oh my God, you know. Yeah. So you get back to Oakland and with this song that you wrote on the side of the road in France and what did the guys think of it when you initially brought it to them? Because like you said, it is a little simpler for Jawbreaker.
1: As I recall, I mean that was a really hot writing period for us. Like that album for the most part, seemed to just fall together. Uh, although we'd been, you know, kind of carrying those songs along for a couple years, songs like that one just happened. And, like, Chris is such a great bass player and Adam and I kind of have a real deep link having gone to high school together. And it, we were just at that place as a band, which I'm sure you know and other band people know is when you're on and people just like look at you or look at what you're doing and start playing. I think we wrote it they wrote their parts almost simultaneously with me playing it. It was so direct. (laughs) It was just like, all right, you know, GCD, GCD. Chris was Mm -hmm. like on it. It was was kind of a, I hate to use the term, but it was like a no-brainer. Like, you're going to go build, stop, climactic, mini break. Like, it was all kind of like good songs, I think. It was all almost built in to it. Like, the structure of it was just self-evident
0: yeah and you know that is a running theme on on my podcast of songs that were written so quickly that just seem to fall together just in a matter of, of of seconds or minutes. uh sometimes those end up being the best and, and uh you know fan favorites in this case of, of bands so uh, I think you mentioned before you were playing this song live then uh prior to ever recording it
1: yeah i'm I'm pretty sure we were I mean it definitely became a song that people got psyched about, you know, they knew word got around the old way, you know, via mail or, <laughs> or phone calls or whatever, uh, you know, of like, oh, it's a song about like how you're not punk. And like that, I think that really appealed to people's sense of kind of how judgmental it could be, how, you know, that feeling of isolation that you get at going to a new scene or club or show, or whatever, that kind of painful self-awareness.
0: Right. And when you when you came back to o- Oakland or I guess when you were on the side of the road in France and you said you wrote the song, did you write like the guitar chords and the melody or was was the bulk of the lyrics there or had you come up with those later?
1: No, I think I just had the verse, the kind of the sing songy part, you know, uh, so the, the chords and the and the melody okay. and probably the killing cops probably came about because of the French police rifling through our van
2: <laughs> that's
0: really? awesome
1: I, mean, I was never never a fan of law enforcement so it could have been any cops but
0: yeah the and the french police i've dealt with them before myself they're uh not the kindest uh so no, it was
1: very yeah it was very fierce at that time like that border in particular i think they were really out to bust people for hash
0: or marijuana especially american bands coming through there you know they're just a red flag <laughs> they must have something in their van yeah do you remember when, uh, producer Steve Albini first heard the track and, and what he thought of it?
1: Uh, knowing Steve, I feel like that would not be his go-to track, <laughs> nor in, in fairness, were, would we be his go-to band? We were just, you know, a band that he had time for and felt he, he could engineer adequately, but like, it's not an emotional connection that we, mm-hmm. I love Steve Albini. I mean, I, I love the records that he's produced and, uh, I really enjoyed working with him, but it was pretty daunting, us being fans and him being a kind of, you know, kind of standoffish uh, guy.
0: I've heard that about Steve. And for our listeners, uh, Steve Albini's produced records uh, from Nirvana, the Pixies, the Breeders, and, and, and many more. And uh, I've heard, and I don't know if this is true or not, that Steve's more of, of an engineer. He's not going to really tell you what's on his mind as a maybe a producer would someone like Rob Cavallo. Would you agree with that assessment? It sounds like he's just kind of kind of back here a little bit
1: absolutely yeah i mean that was he was very clear about that that's his way of working with groups is, as a kind of a very accomplished technician mm-hmm. like just there to take a snapshot a sonic snapshot of the band having said that he's bringing all of his kind of power as someone who like really you know knows frequencies and, and sounds um to take what he thinks is the best portrait of that band
0: where did you record the record at that was at his
1: house. Uh, he had a studio with like a control room up in the attic and the tracking room in the basement. So it was before electrical audio, like before his new you know
0: studio now. And he lived in Chicago, correct? That's right. Yeah, we are. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, we're going to get into uh, the the song now. Uh, There's a four second guitar intro. It's just a a two quarter. And then from the five uh, second to uh, 12 second mark of the song, there's like a volume swell. And I almost hear Blake. And it's funny. I don't remember ever hearing this. And I've listened to this song hundreds of times. But when I went to analyze this and really get the headphones on and and, and get into it, is there a piano or keyboard underneath there? Like almost staccato notes going. There isn't. No. There isn't. Maybe just some overtones. (laughs) <laughs> do you know what I? Yeah. Do you know what I'm hearing though? Like right there at like between the five uh, second and twelve second mark before the vocals start. It. I swear I'm hearing like a staccato staccato piano going or, or a keyboard of some nature, and which is would be very strange to, uh, to think of Jawbreaker having that. But uh, I guess you've cleared that up. It's not. It's not there. <laughs> um, we're going to get into the to the first uh, verse here, and I'll have you break it down. You're not punk, and I'm telling everyone, save your breath, I never was one. You don't know what I'm all about, like killing cops and reading Kerouac. Right. So I get you're not punk, I'm telling everyone, save your breath, I never was one. You don't know what I'm all about, like killing cops. <laughs> and, you know, reading Jack Kerouac, I get that, but the I guess you said the killing cops was referring back to possibly the, the whole thing that happened in France.
1: Yeah, I think it was just a kind of I mean, as I said, it's a very offhand piece of writing. And it was like, you know, hey, I'm I'm about a lot more than just this little scene in the Bay Area or, you know, what your version of kind of punk rock or underground music is. Like I happen to, you know, have radical fantasies and I like to read certain
0: writers. And what was that like at that time? I know that you guys were just part adored in the Bay Area, but you know, what were some of those things you were going through, you know, from people talking? I mean, at at that time, it would have been in zines or just gossiping. You know, there was no social media.
1: The Bay Area has always been a kind of contentious scene. I think there's a lot of of shit talk in there. And uh, I think it comes out of Berkeley, primarily, like Berkeley being a, a kind of seat of radicalism and discourse in the 60s. And a lot of the kids there grew up in, in, you know, kind of former hippie or radical households, or I don't know. There's just a tone that like makes you want to punch somebody. Sometimes when you're, you would be at Gilman street and some person would start talking to you as though they had your number. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm going to quote Adam, Adam had the best take on it. He's like, there's guys in the East Bay that just seem like they've never been punched in their life. (laughs) (laughs) And I think people who've been there, aren't from there might understand what that's about what that that take
0: yeah and it's funny (laughs) it's funny because i grew up buying mail order records from lookout and you know i i had this fantasy as a young kid as a young punk rocker of what the the bay area was like like you guys 15 crimp shrine green day mr t experience that whole scene like I was immersed in it, absolutely loved every bit of it, was was just enamored by the whole thing. And when I went there, you're right. It was it was intimidating the first time I went to the Bay Area. You knew you were an outsider, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. I mean it's it's hard in retrospect to parse part of that is just being young. And there is like a you know, there's always kind of a cliquish way of young societies set themselves up. You know what I mean? Like it could right. be, uh, you could be it could, that could be at the mall, like whatever. <laughs> so there was that kind of, and like Gilman was home for the people that really were there all the time working and volunteering. And, and so they made it very clear like, this is our house, your guest. Right. And yeah, like that was, yeah, it was intimidating. You know, they couldn't be bothered really. They didn't care about your reputation. If you're from out of town, they're like, so what? You're, you're, you're hot shit in, in Gainesville. Doesn't mean shit here in Gilman, you know, (laughs) but we got that. Like we were kind of from San Francisco, but also a little bit from L.A. So there were a lot of people were like, "Ah, jawbreaker, never heard of them. Don't care. It took a while. I mean, eventually people like began to embrace us, but it was like at first it was just like can't be bothered.
0: This is so crazy to hear because I, you know, first started listening to your band uh, 30, 31 years ago now. And to hear that that you were going through that. I mean, I just as a kid figured you're from that area and just you're just gods there and everyone loves you and and that was my perception, you know.
1: No, I mean we were very fortunate in that our first vinyl feature was on a World in Shreds comp, which was a Berkeley label with Crim Shrine. And so we were kind of jumped in a little bit that way and they, they liked us, you know. Aaron and Paul and, and um, Jeff like, really liked our band. So we, we, had, we got a foothold in that way. Also, Gilman's like, kind of a transient community. At that time, it felt like you know, a lot of kids who left home would kind of show up there and start working and figuring their lives out. And then that whole group would kind of move, sometimes move on. So it was never like a fixed. There were some st- stalwart characters, but there were a lot of like, young people flowing in and out of there.
0: Interesting. Well, we get into the, the, the what I'm calling the pre-chorus, and here it breaks down to eight-note guitars. I really, really like how the feel changes there. And the lyric is, my enemies are all too familiar. They're the ones who used to call me friend. And on friend, it opens back up to the to the guitars, uh, the two-quarter there. And then, uh, I'm coloring outside your guidelines. I was passing out when you were passing out your rules. And it's really a cool chord climb, that happens there to set up for what is uh, what is the chorus uh, but these lyrics here let's uh, let's break these down if you, if, if you could I think it's
1: more of the same I mean it's the you know it's the kind of rigid punk guidelines of of the community and that their enforcers who thought like would, would tell you how, what was proper behavior and what was improper. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of a contradiction of that scene. I think is that it was like, I think you were right in picking up on it being really fun that there was genuine like horseplay and ridiculousness. And, you know, like, I think what drew outsiders to the Bay area and Gilman was that it from the outside appeared not to take itself too seriously. You know, with a band like 15 or, or uh, Mr. T or something like it was a little goofy.
0: Yeah, it, it it was. And at the same time, I don't know if you can relate to this at all. But, for, uh, you know, a kid from Florida back in the day when all I had was MRR and Flipside and whatever my buddies got in the mail, the 7-inch that week to to, to talk about. And this is before I even got to Gainesville. But my whole perception of, of the Bay Area was your bands were so much tougher than like East Coast hardcore bands. Like those are the bands that people thought were tough and, and and mighty, but you guys just had had a grit, a dirtiness to it uh, that that I didn't feel present in other uh, other scenes. I don't I don't know. I just always felt that there was even a band like Mr. T, who was goofy. There was still this uh, uh, some somewhat of a grit to to it to me.
1: Well, I always felt I was drawn to the Bay Area scene because it felt more punk rock than the East Coast that I had come from, mm-hmm. which was very much like rooted in hardcore at that point and i didn't like i just reflexively didn't dig the kind of jock culture of of new england hardcore you know i love some of those bands and i went to some great shows but like that was not my world and yeah. i was never gonna make it in that world and uh and i when i was introduced to punk rock it was much more about like art damage you know <laughs> like kind of fractured and also very creative And I felt like the Bay Area was much more about that, like classic punk in the sense of like, make your own clothes and, you know, have shitty amps and it should sound chaotic and kind of barely hanging, hanging together a little more Mm -hmm. frayed.
0: Yeah. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying, that whole hate Ashbury, the Berkeley, that whole kind of, you know, you guys weren't hippies, but you know, you were doing a lot of the same things that they were making your own clothes, making up your own fashion, you know, speaking your own language
1: well we were decidedly anti-hippie though right because <laughs> they were pretty bad man <laughs> at that point yeah. in the bay area that was pretty sad
2: <laughs> this
0: Well, the end of the first pre-chorus, uh, the band is ringing out, and all of a sudden you just say, one, two, three, or actually on the four, one, two, three, four, the band rings out, there's a dead stop, and you said, you say, who's punk, what's the score? And, you know, again... Such a simple lyric, but I've seen you guys play this live, and you know what happens during this part. every fist in the air, and it's just it's <laughs> it's perfect was did that just come to you? Was it always that that lyric? I don't remember, but uh,
1: yeah, it seems like something that would have happened just practicing or just kind of again kind of off the cuff, you know the simplest solution
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah,
1: but definitely people, people uh, found something in that that they related to.
0: It's interesting. The recording is very raw, but, I mean, the, the, the drums are very powerful and where the guitar hits are. And, uh, and when you say, what's the, and when the floor tom and the snare hit on that part and the band comes back in, it's just, it's just heavy. One,
2: two, three, four, who's punk? What's the score?
0: You know and it's a it's a full reintro there, and then we get into verse two. And verse two is funny to me because early on I knew what El Saab was because Green Day had talked about El El Sobrante, California before, and um, I always loved that lyric. And, and the lyric in the second verse is "Got a friend, her name is Boxcar, cigarettes and beer in El Saab, Her hair was blue, now it's green." I like her mind. She hates the scene. So was was Boxcar someone's punk name?
1: That was my girlfriend. Really? Yeah. And we had a kind of uh, shared disdain for right thinking of uh, the scene. And we drank (sighs) drank a lot of beer together and um, drove around a lot together. Not at the same time, but, you know.
0: Man, I I am... Sorry, I'm a little emotional. I'm like smiling ear to ear right now. A song I listened for 30 years. I never knew it was about your girlfriend. I I, th- I thought a million things of what boxcar could mean. And uh, <laughs> like a, a little kid in a candy story now, man, Blake. I'm just like, this is great. Uh, so your girlfriend's name was Boxcar. So how did that kind of relate back to what the song is about? Uh, just because she was there living this with you?
1: Yeah, uh, she was very much, uh, I met her through, the punk scene and um i tried to impress her i'll tell a little anecdote here pretty, <laughs> is, i'm pretty proud of this one we went on a went for uh chris Bauermeister's birthday party up to uh the park in golden gate park i hate ashbury we hiked out to this island and climbed up to the top of this little mountain in the middle of an island we'd stolen a birthday cake from safeway and a <laughs> big jar of pickles and boxcar was present, and I liked her. I thought she was cool. And, uh, but I didn't know her that well. So I drank the whole jar of pickle juice to impress her. And it did. It worked. <laughs> Later on, I found out it worked. Yeah, that was just planning the seed. You know, that was like my long game. And then I, I kind of asked back after it, like, did she notice the pickle juice thing? And I found out that indeed she did.
0: So that yeah, was cool. That- <laughs> that uh, I did not uh, at all think that I would have uh he uh, heard you talk about pickle juice today. That's awesome. do you do you still talk to Boxcar?
1: Uh we are a little bit in touch. Yeah, she's out west, so you know, we haven't seen each other in a long time, but we're friendly.
0: Okay, okay. That's, uh, that's very cool. We get into uh, pre-chorus two, which is the same lyric, uh, which I was almost going to call these verses, uh, like a second part of, of each verse. But since the lyric is the same in each one, I'm, I'm calling it a pre-chorus. My enemies are all too familiar. They're the ones who used to call me friend. I'm coloring outside your guidelines. I was passing out when you were passing out your rules. Do you remember ever having another set of lyrics here, or having it changed up? Or did you, did you want it to be the same?
1: I think it was always going to be the same. I mean, okay. I used to try to never repeat myself, but this song kind of seems like a song where you do repeat yourself. I mean, it's so four on the floor, kind of straightforward.
0: Then that- that's why I asked you. Interesting, you say that because you listen to other Jawbreaker tracks, and not a lot of repeating going on. Again, it I I've always likened you more to a to a poet than a lyricist which a lot you know there's a bleed over there but it's like poetry and this song I think lends itself because of the simplicity to having this repeat
1: yeah I think I mean it's kind of anthemic and you want people to like by them they they can know it you know they know they don't have to remember that much to sing along like right is pretty you know I think we can all retain that (laughs)
0: Well, we get into uh, chorus two. One, two, three, four. Who's punk? What's the score? And it's funny, that only happens twice in this song. You know, for such a huge part, and again, I don't know if you need to hear it more than that because you, it's it is so simplistic. You hear it, and and that's what it is. Uh, and after that happens, the intro guitar comes back in. It's just the guitar by itself. To pray for I, I keep saying the word simple but some of the best songs are and, and catchiest songs are are just that uh, guitar by itself and now we're into an outro and the outro here is um, you're all alone all alone all alone on your own all alone all alone all alone you're on your own and the song ends at one minute and 56 seconds on think it needs anything more right (laughs) no i think
1: we may have had a little uh discussion about putting the chorus in again because we thought it was catchy and liked it um and then we quickly quashed that we're like just no leave them wanting more you know like get out of there it was so rare that we had a short song we really like we needed more short songs Fans would tell you that in in Europe. They're like, what the fuck, dude? Loss <laughs> los is lost. This, this is five minutes. It's ridiculous.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, you guys did have for a punk band some uh, definitely longer arrangements. It wasn't in the two two minute mark. This was a was a shorter track. So again, going back to when, when you recorded it and it was up against because going back and listening to 24 Hour uh, Revenge Therapy. This song kinda kinda sticks out on its own. Was there ever a thought of this this doesn't fit in with the record?
1: No, I think we we knew that was a a hit. We knew it was like that was a big cornerstone of the record. Like we've got you know, when you build a record, you're kind of you're hopefully getting songs along the way until you feel confident enough. Like at around eight or nine songs you're like me, we can start looking at studio time. Like we've got enough. We're over the hump. Okay. And I think that was a pillar of what we had. We're like, this is a solid bet. So
0: cool. definitely it cool. was
1: always, yeah, it was going to be featured on the record.
0: And now the record comes out. And I know you had played the song prior to the record, but you said you you, you think you did. But record finally comes out and now you're going and playing songs from the album. Do you remember this one? getting a, a, a better reaction than other tracks or, or was, was it pretty crazy out of the gate fan reaction wise?
1: Yeah, it was pretty instant. I mean, cause we're, you know, we're a little more of an obtuse band. Like we are, yeah. you have to dig and um, to an, to a newcomer, it might be like, I don't know what this is, but that one was very much like, here you go. <laughs> you know, and I think it was instant. People just like, they remembered it immediately. It was, it was a little pop song. So it could just yeah. get a hold of it.
0: Did that reaction surprise you or did you guys kind of know that was what it was going to be?
1: I know that it delighted us. And like we would have to hold it, you know, be like, all right, we need a winner at around track eight or nine in a set list. After, you know, whatever it would be, they're going to the be five long. minute
0: obtuse song.
1: <laughs> yeah. They're going to be like people are going to be drifting away towards the bar. So like we have to pull them back in. So that was kind of our <laughs> eighth in the hole, like when in doubt boxcar.
0: Right. Well, that is so cool though, uh, because I've had songs that I've written and, and I wanna see if you can relate to this that you're for sure that the uh, the fans are gonna love it. And even the recording of the song's good. It came out the tempo's right, the vocals sitting right. And you go play it live, and it just sits there like a dead fish in the water. And you might try it the next night, and finally you just drop it from the set list. You're like, it's not working live. And then there's some times where you're convinced a song's going to work live, and it does. And it sounds like that's what Boxcar was. Like, you know what? This is a little pop gem It's going to work.
1: Yeah. I mean, we've definitely had those other songs, but we're pretty obstinate. Like, if we liked a song and thought it was strong, we would just keep playing it until people either accepted or left.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, that's a good attitude to have Kind of um, like
1: the whole Dear You record Was a little bit like we Put that out and it just sat there like a dead fish
0: Which is crazy To think because you know, it, it's kind of what I call revisionist history as people. Now it's like, Oh, I love that record. It's like, well, you didn't love it then. Uh, because I mean, I, I know fans of, of jawbreaker that the dear you back then was not their favorite record, but now is their favorite record. It's funny how time has a way of, uh, of changing your perceptions.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I talk about to friends who do creative work a lot about this. And like, I think we as artists kind of have unfair expectations in a way that if you look at art through history, it's very rare that someone's art is appreciated in their lifetime. I mean, music's a little more quick, but nonetheless, like Mm -hmm. deep creative work, you know, you're lucky if anyone's paying attention. And so I try to keep that perspective of like, sometimes you just got to keep on the road and like, ultimately you're doing it for yourself. And yeah, if you're waiting around for people to to tell you to keep going, like they you're going to, you're going to run out of air. (laughs)
0: for sure. Well, you know, you mentioned at the top of of the show, you know, that, uh, you were surprised that I that I picked this song, and it was for me. It was it was more about the story, and and I I I, I wrestle with this with the show. Like, do I go for like the fan hit, or do, do I go for the song? Like, I would have loved to have broken down uh, "Savior Generation." The key changes in that song are just mind boggling. That's the jawbreaker that that I <laughs> know and love, and and um I love Boxcar equally, but they're completely different worlds. You know, um I did notice when I was researching the song that on the 24-Hour Revenge Therapy 20th, 20th Anniversary Edition. There's an alternate version on there. It almost sounds like a demo. Was Is that what that was?
1: That's a, I don't know, actually. Adam Adam would know that because he's kind of our archivist and okay. has all the tapes.
0: It's funny. It almost sounds like the same take, but you're, it sounds like you're playing through like a, I don't know, like a really bad tube amp or something. Like It's just the guitars sound, sound different on that uh, particular take. And I do want to touch on the Dear You sessions, and Rob had told me, and I don't know if this is true, Rob Cavallo, um, I had asked, well, why was it left off of Dear You? And he said it just didn't, didn't seem like it fit in on the record. Was that the case?
1: Yeah, I thought it was, it felt a little desperate to me. Like the label really wanted, you know, they, they felt it was a strong single, an introduction to the band, but it seemed kind of cheap to us to like include what was already on our last record, and our, our base would know that, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they could go buy the, the third record.
0: <laughs> well, and it's funny because Dear You sounds so much different than 24-Hour Revenge Therapy. Production-wise, everything. Rob's just a, a different producer. Sonically, Dear You, just, it sounds way cleaner. I absolutely love it. But it's funny, the, the re-recording of Boxcar doesn't sound that much different to me. It's it's damn near the same. Tones and everything.
1: I know, it's true. Hey, that also was another reason. It's like we haven't changed it. We haven't improved on it at all. So why add it? Like, even if the guitars are technically wider, it doesn't beat the original. The original has, like, got all the spirit.
0: Yeah. Um, I, it, it's funny. You say it doesn't beat the original. It, it's almost so samey as the original that, yeah, why, why include it again? Why not just include the original, <laughs> tack it onto the record?
1: Yeah, it yeah. felt like a cover
0: in a way. As everyone knows, you guys took a long hiatus, and I believe it was 2017. Was that the, the, the Riot Fest show when you guys came back? Yeah. Okay. And you're looking down the set list, Boxcar's Next. And you go into it. What did that feel like? Because I know I, the place exploded. I've seen the videos.
1: Yeah, well, we did that first, and uh, it was again kind of like the song, like a no-brainer. We we're like, we argued a bit, like, well, we could be like challenging and put something really hardcore up front for the fans, but then it just seemed like, you know what, this isn't like rocket science. It's people who want to see the band after a long time, and like, let's just start with this is going to be fun. So it was a bit of a gesture of goodwill, and like, also, we just knew technically it's not one you have to think about that much, except for me, like, hitting my toggle switch to get to the from quiet to loud, which I <laughs> probably almost missed. But it was, you know, it's like a re, it's a muscle memory song, so you're just like, we're gonna be, we made a rule, like, we're gonna be so fucking terrified for the first 15 minutes of that set that let's keep it on stuff shit we're really confident about autopilot. Yeah, Adam had suggested actually. Save your generation. He thought that would be the killer opener, and I agree. Like the logic was sound. It's like that's a you know that's a good way into a set because it's kind of walking the plank, just the singer and the guitar. But to me, that was a nightmare. It's like I, I suck at downstrokes. First of all, <laughs> So it's going to be my like flubby. I do like up and down, even if it's supposed to sound like
0: in know, front of sixty thousand people at Riot Fest. <laughs>
1: yeah, I was just like, there's so much room for catastrophe here. Let's just go with like the balls out. You know track so it was it was a great great opener and it was yeah definitely people i was looking down the whole i didn't look up till 15 minutes into that set yeah i was just well, staring at my into my own mind like keeping myself level and just keeping space so i could let lyrics come forward and all that
0: before we wrap up here you know in all those intervening years in, in between the the breakup of course you you formed jets to brazil you guys had uh what I consider really, really great success. Uh, many bands would give their eye teeth to have the success you had. But in the back of your mind, did you know that the legend of Jawbreaker was growing? Did you know that that eventually you were going to be on stage again? Or, or did you want to let the beast lie?
1: I really didn't think we would be back together. And I felt the legend grow because that was the first thing that hit Jeffs to Brazil in the face was like, all the people that didn't seem interested in dear you were there screaming at just Brazil to be more like late period Jawbreaker. in the Mm. beginning of that band. So it was really tough on my bandmates because they were like, you know, what the fuck dude? Like, don't they know we're in a different band? (laughs) Yeah. But, but it was just still a little bit of that going on. So, but I could see definitely like the legacy. We were a lot Jawbreaker was a lot more popular after the split
0: than, than during. I've uh, told people that I, you know, that I saw the band, younger fans of, of you know, my band that I'd see on the road and we'd get to talking about punk music and stuff and you know, they never had a chance. They were too young to see you guys and, and it was just, you saw Jawbreaker. I mean, people literally freaking out and I know you had to have felt that, what I'm calling the legend grow and then finally it just culminates with you guys at Riot Fest and that just, that had to give you, I don't know, some kind of uh, closure, so to speak, on what had happened to the band? Because, again, I feel you guys were unfairly treated by the press, by the fans, uh, uh, for going to a major. It was just uncalled for, in my opinion.
1: It felt, yeah, it did feel like a certain vindication, um, mostly because it was so joyous. You know? Good. But Riot Fest was the right place for us to do it. Just like the whole culture of that f- festival is so in tune with where we come from, and they're so about music and about having a, a really good time. You know, yeah. So, like, they they took great care of us. Yeah. And I think we all felt a little bit resolved. (laughs) Good. like, Like, I love the feeling of walking off that stage after we just thrashed it. And, like, the relief was palpable between all three of us. Like, so much history and damage and joy, too, but, like, a lot of sadness. You know, it wasn't fixed, but it was like, it was seen. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and, and and I'm gonna tell you something from the punk community and I think so many years had passed all those sellout and all that crap and everything that happened you know time does a certain way of healing things. nobody in the punk community, nobody that I knew everyone was stoked you guys were coming back it was like arms in the air this is a victory. Everyone's happy. This is not a bad thing. There was no shit talking. It's like, fuck yeah, Jawbreaker's playing Riot Fest. We were stoked, and just congratulations on, on having that resolve. You guys, you guys deserve it. You're absolute legends, and I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for, for being on, on the podcast.
1: Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it.
2: Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out.
0: As we the end of the show, here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Chris to make a podcast, all you have to do is submit your song and bio to bandyoumightnotknow at gmail.com. This week's featured artist is Compilations. It is a project started by Terry Irwin from Austin, Texas. Terry gets together with some friends and uh, they create these songs and look for guest vocalists to sing on the songs. Uh, This particular track we're about to uh, play features Ken Conti from the band The Implants on lead vocals. You can stream their songs on Apple Music and Spotify. And here's a snippet of their song, With Time. The Wrap with Chris and Chris.
2: All right, man. Well, from the bottom of my heart, I think that was one of the best episodes. But I'm going to preface that by saying I feel like, to use some 90s terminology, I feel like a real poser because for as big of a punk rock fan as I was and as I am, I kind of missed Jawbreaker. And I don't really know why I missed them, but... You, on the other hand, (laughs) if people, I know everyone's just listening to the podcast and can't see you, but you had a smile from ear to ear that entire conversation because, and I could just tell how huge of a Jawbreaker fan that you are. So, you know, talk about that for a second.
0: Well, I just, like I said, it it was, it was almost like they were a Gainesville band. They were just like gods. They were legends in Gainesville. And you know, I I was more of a Jawbreaker fan now than I was back then. Believe it or not, like they were. Blake even mentioned uh, uh, some of their stuff was kind of obtuse and out there. You know, and I was more mm-hmm. of an immediate, more of a pop punk fan. You know, and that's why I love Boxcar so much. It was just, it was, it was just a little more digestible than some of their other stuff. But as the years have passed, like I said, like a song like Save Your Generation" from Dear You, just the. The, the key changes throughout that song are just, they're bizarre. I'm like, how can you write a song like that? This, These guys were so ahead of their time, and, and as I mentioned in the episode, uh, just unfairly treated. I mean, you can tell that... Uh, that the band went through hell and they I'm, I'm so glad that, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad I brought it up and I'm glad that Blake feels that they had some resolve. That's the word he used. That made me feel good as a fan. And, and that's why I was smiling ear to ear because I just felt during the episode too, I learned so much, <laughs> you know, right. and just the fact he opened up about drinking pickle juice, you know.
2: <laughs> yeah, that was cool. Hey, he said something I thought was pretty profound He was talking about like that punk scene stuff, the punk scene ethics of the 90s and and Berkeley in general. And what he said was looking back on it, it's beautiful. And that was a pretty cool thing to hear because, yeah, at the time being immersed in it, it had to be the most obnoxious, annoying thing in the world to have to deal with that. But looking back, the fact that people cared that much about that sort of thing. Yeah, it is kind of beautiful. I know that when I was researching this episode to send you some notes, I was reading things like I got all mad <laughs> about reading about Ben Weasel giving him such a hard time, like in articles and things like that. And, you know, I was a Screeching Weasel fan, but I'm like reading this being like, man, fuck Ben Weasel. <laughs> but looking back, like, There's almost something uh, complimentary about the fact that someone cared enough because you could very easily be indifferent to whatever bands do. And I feel kind of like that. People are indifferent about that sort of thing for the most part from what I see and experience. It's people do care a lot more just about what's the song sound like? How's it make me feel? Which on one hand is a cool thing, but on the other hand, like maybe you do miss a little bit of people caring so much about that stuff.
0: Well, I think he when he when he said beautiful, I think he was referring to a simpler time too, Chris, because he had had said right after that that you know it's just kind of been replaced now by social media, the hatred, you know, and Mm -hmm. those petty jealousies of life and those clicks and those clicks start young, you know, they start in preschool, kindergarten, you know. Yeah, I hang out with these kids, and that's what was going on in the punk scene then. And I think he 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 meant beautiful because it was a simpler time. Uh, there there is more even though it was it was tumultuous and crazy back then what they were going through and what some bands are going through just you know for for doing what they wanted to do as a band um i think it's uh, definitely more evil there's more hatred now with uh, how accessible you know, any one of these keyboard warriors can be <laughs> online i thought it was
2: really interesting when he was talking about the bay area scene in general i never really thought about the fact that berkeley He called it, it was a seat of radicalism in the 60s. I mean, that's where the hippies were, the anti-war movement. When I watch things, movies, documentaries or whatever, I always look at that area as being like, that's my people. (laughs) That's where I would have been. But it's funny to think about, okay, that's the 60s, 70s in that area. Now those people have kids and they have this sort of outlook on things and that's where this punk scene develops in the 90s that you and I are very familiar with. And You know, you kind of have this attitude, you know, that that Blake referred to as a tone that makes you want to punch someone. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that I thought that was really funny. And he said there's a lot of guys in East Bay that seem like they've never been punched and things like that. That made me kind of understand that attitude. And you you brought up and, and I feel the same like the first time you play that area, the first time you play in Berkeley or San Francisco, it's a little bit intimidating.
0: Yeah, there was definitely... It was grimy. It was... I mean, some of the areas, that, well, a lot of the punk clubs back then were, uh, you know, always in seedy areas, but there was just something uh, gritty about it. I don't know. There was something, I felt there was a little more danger there than there was in New York City or New Jersey or, or even Detroit or Chicago. There was just something about the Bay Area. And, and a lot of it was what I had built up in my head that I just, these, I would sit there at night and as, as a high school kid and just, you know, read the liner notes to the Mr. T Experience record or, or you know, Green Day or Screeching Weasel and just, be like have these fantasies of what it would be like to live there you know and what what it's like and uh so it was you know i remember the first time going out there it was just so cool it's like this is where all these bands this this is their stomping grounds this is amazing
2: switching over a little bit to music talk a little bit one thing that was mentioned in this episode that i don't think has been mentioned in any episode yet but is very interesting to me is that Blake mentioned overtones. You thought you heard something. You thought you heard some keys or something in, uh, in the beginning I, of the song? I'm
0: convinced there's a damn piano doing a staccato like ding, 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 ding p- piano part. Isn't that isn't that crazy, man? For anyone who's <laughs> listening,
2: overtones overtones are something about the frequency in the song that fools your ears and your brain into thinking you're hearing something that's not there. And I've had lots of examples of this over time. I'm hearing a lot of times it is what you're saying. It's a piano. It's a synth. It's something, but it's actually just something you're hearing in the recording or something you're hearing like in feedback or that's fooling your brain.
0: Yeah, and, and, and my brain was telling me that there's no way in 1994 a Jawbreaker put a piano on their damn record. My, my brain, my mind was telling me that, but, this, but my ears were telling me something else. <laughs> and right. Uh, it's right at the 12-second mark at the top. There's a volume swell, and then... Uh, uh, the, the band comes in, and I swear I, I hear this uh, piano keyboard something uh, like buried back there that's kind of chugging it along. But uh, Blake, uh, Blake set me straight. There is not. I'm sure there's more
2: of a scientific explanation to it than what I can offer. And I'm sure someone, you know, like Howard Benson or Mark McCluskey or somebody could talk to why exactly you hear that I understand the concept I don't understand the science behind it but yeah they, yeah, they, they tell me they
0: tell me I've been in a punk rat rock band for 30 years my ears are shot <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah <laughs> yeah that 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 could be it um another thing you guys touched on in this episode uh, is the legend of steve albini i i play in a band called pack and one of my bandmates scott plays in a band called Zeo, who has recorded with steve albini before so i i've heard some first-hand accounts of steve albini and you guys touched on it for anyone who doesn't know anyone who plays in a Rock band knows Steve Albini. You know, he's famous for producing everyone from Nirvana to the Pixies to the Breeders, uh, Super Chunk, Cheap Trick, uh, Helmet, uh, Joanna Newsome. The, the, the list goes on and on and on. And one of those things when it comes to punk rock ethics is that Steve Albini famously never takes publishing on something. He does, which is wild because, you know, that could have resulted in millions and millions of dollars from Nirvana alone, you know. But uh, I think that just like uh, Blake had touched on, I-, I think that maybe Steve Albini considers himself more of just an, an engineer of someone who, who captures something and not so much of a producer. But you and I wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't necessarily agree with it. The guy is a producer.
0: Well, yeah, he's credited as producer. But, you know, as Blake said, he's just there to take to take a snapshot of what that band does. You know, oh, that's what your amp sounds like. Cool. I'm going to put a microphone in front of it and, and make it sound like that through, through the speakers. You know, that's that's what uh, that's kind of his uh, his thought process of recording. And, and I can respect that, you know, and I can respect what you said of uh, him saying, you know what, uh, I'm not I'm not taking credit, uh, monetary credit for, for this composition. That was you. I just I was just here to capture that.
2: <laughs> which is really funny because in researching this episode I saw that uh on this album I believe it's this album uh, <laughs> that the producer is credited as Steve Albini's cat <laughs> is, is who is credited as the producer. Yeah, the, the uh, cat's is,
0: name is Fluss, F L U S S. So that's that's really really funny. Meow.
2: Oh, Chris, you know what? Speaking of
0: Fluss, I heard he had some relatives up in Everett, Washington. Fluss certainly does have relatives in Everett, Washington, Chris. And that would be this month's fundraiser, Kitty Corner Cat Rescue and Lounge, located in Everett, Washington. Since their start in 2016, they have saved over 2,000 cats from high-kill shelters and cared for them until they found their forever homes. Kitty Corner is more than a shelter. It's also a place where you can go and hang out with kittens in a comfy lounge-style setting. Owner Christina Robinson, volunteer and fundraising coordinator Bonnie Sands, and the whole kitty crew are incredibly grateful for this opportunity to raise funds to keep saving kitty lives. So please, if you can, head over to kristamakesadifference.com. That'll link you to their site, and you could uh, help, uh, help us out with some kittens. Donate some money, please. I love
2: spending time with cats and kittens in a comfortable setting.
0: (laughs) It's one of my favorite things to do. Why would you want to spend uh, time with a cat in an an uncomfortable setting, right? Absolutely not.
2: But I do (laughs) often spend uncomfortable times with my own cats. But that's a whole different story. If you can, head to com and pitch in a buck, pitch in two, pitch in ten, whatever you can to help out the great people at Kitty Corner Cat Rescue and Lounge. That's like a tongue twister. But uh, go check it out at chrismakesadifference.com.
0: Yeah, I want to thank each and every one of you every month who donates uh, to our fundraisers. It feels really good to give back, and we could not do it without you. Thank you so much. Uh, If you haven't checked out the new Less Than Jake YouTube page, it is revamped with a bunch of cool stuff. So head over and check it out, and please hit that subscribe button. And you know, I host a songwriting podcast that you're listening to. uh, And because it's a songwriting podcast, I guess you could kind of assume, Chris, that I'm into songwriting. So I want to write somebody. That means you a custom song hit me up at christa at gmail.com i could write a song for your wife for your husband for your friend for a co-worker anniversaries birthdays special occasions whatever hit me up and uh, i'll send you some info i'm still waiting for my song although i kind of got
2: my song chris because you and i have a related podcast that we release an episode of each week now to our supporting cast program and the theme song is is finally kind of my song. It
0: is. The After Party theme song was written for you, in honor of you, for sure. Uh, Please check out kristamakes.com. That'll uh, direct you to Supporting Cast, which is our VIP program. You'll get uh, bonus episodes and all kinds of other great stuff uh, in the near future we'll be, uh, be releasing.
2: It's really awesome how many of you have signed up. We're really excited about that. It allows us to continue making this podcast that you've grown to love, just like I say in the ads. (laughs) You'll hear ads every week on here for our episode of The After Party that week, which is our bonus episode each week. And uh, yeah, kristamakes.com, if you can help us out. That will be really, really awesome. And for those of you that have, thank you. And I hope you enjoy
0: all the bonus content. There will be surprises along the way too, we promise. And as usual, thanks to each and every one of you for your support. And I want to thank this week's guest, Mr. Blake Schorzenbach from Jawbreaker for being on the show. He was awesome. And we'll see you next week. Bowie.
2: On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G
0: Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11.